a real conversation and some hard truths. Gangs, drugs, and guns, giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. All right. Welcome, everyone. And Nathan Romas here with you again. And today we've got another friend from across the border to the south. We've got Bob Scales with us. Bob is a former King County Deputy Prosecutor and Special Assistant United States Attorney for the Western District of Washington. He worked for 14 years for the City of Seattle as a public safety policy advisor to three mayors. And Bob represented the Seattle Police Department during the 2011 Department of Justice Pattern or Practice Investigation and served as a compliance coordinator under the Federal Consent Decree. He's currently the CEO of Police Strategies, LLC, a company that uses data science and technology to help police agencies implement effective policies, training programs, and accountability systems. So welcome, Bob. Thank you for having me. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention uh, before we kind of get into uh, your background was I just want to say how I appreciate some of your work and uh, some of the stuff I've been following and the articles you put out there is you do keep an eye on both sides of the border and you comment on some of the articles that come up a lot around statistics and stuff that uh, is being used in current political narratives and policing narratives. So um, I appreciate the work on that. And the questions that you ask are a lot of the questions that the front line asks, but not necessarily the media or what's coming from management. So I just wanted to make sure you're aware of that. Well, well thank you. Yeah, I just started sort of posting on on LinkedIn uh, last last year, and and uh, I, I was more just sort of posting it to just express my my thoughts and frustrations with a lot of the the media articles about policing. And it, it really seemed to resonate, I think, on both sides of the border, and it sort of mushroomed. And now I, now, I, now I feel the need to publish because a lot of people seem to appreciate what I'm saying. And I don't think a lot of people are, are actually looking critically at, at a lot of the narratives that are put out there about policing, and, and which really don't make any sense. And so when you sort of break it down and look at the actual data and what's actually happening... The, the narrative sort of fall apart. Yeah. So, well, we're going to get into all that. Uh, lots of good stuff coming up. Uh, if we can, though, if we can kind of start at the beginning and if you could run us through uh, how you got into this world that you're in now, especially being in the Seattle area, which uh, as far as we see up here in Canada, is generally the hotbed for uh, police news and uh, all things happening with police down there. So, um, can you tell us a bit about growing up and uh, how you got to where you are? Sure. So, so I started out uh, as a as a, a deputy prosecutor in King County, Washington, which is where Seattle is, which is the largest county in Washington State. Um, and uh, I worked there for six years. And one of the things I've always been interested in is is data. And so, if ever I can find a way to incorporate data into my work, no matter what it is, then I'll then I'll do that. And we uh, the the, the city of Seattle got a grant um, in the 90s to focus on juvenile gun crime. And so, so I, was, uh, uh, I volunteered to sort of be the, the prosecutor that, that, that handled only juvenile gun cases. 
And as part of that project, I produced a detailed um, data report for the federal, it was a federal grant for the federal government. And, um, and they really, they really liked that uh, because we were really able to show um, not only what was happening in juvenile gun crime in Seattle and King County, but also that we, we developed a very effective prosecution program, a vertical prosecution program that uh, uh, really uh, helped to uh, hold juveniles accountable for bringing guns to school and for using firearms uh, uh, unlawfully. Um, and um, of course, you know, the crime sort of spiked in the, in the mid nineties, but, but uh, we did show some, some pretty significant um, benefits from having a, a, an intense focus on a particular type of crime that was causing a lot of problems. Um, and then I, I moved to the city of Seattle and worked as a public safety policy advisor for several mayors. And, and you know, basically the gamut from homelessness to drug crime, uh, to gang crime, to violent uh, firearm crime, and, and uh, just basically jack of all trades for public safety. And then I, I was also working in the, in the city attorney's office in Seattle, and I was there when the Department of Justice came in and did their pattern of practice investigation in 2011. And in the United States, we have, there's a federal statute that was passed in 1994, which allows the Department of Justice to investigate departments for patterns of practice of unconstitutional policing. And... Um, there's no definition of what a pattern of practice is, and and I have a lot of problems with with the, the consent decree process. Um, but we had, the, the city ended up uh, entering into a consent decree with the Department of Justice, and I uh, the mayor appointed me to be the compliance coordinator in the Seattle Police Department to oversee the reforms. And uh, I left the city in 2014 and formed uh, police strategies. Uh, LLC with some former colleagues from Seattle PD. And for the last eight years, we've been uh, working with uh, just over 100 law enforcement agencies in eight states to help them collect, analyze, and report on their data, mostly use of force data. That's what we focused on. And essentially what I wanted to do is take the lessons we learned from the consent decree and the main lesson was is that nobody knows anything about use of force because there is no data. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so by, by really helping departments do a deep dive into their use of force data, um, we're able to, um, or departments are able to, to really help um, uh, you know, develop um, uh, effective policies and training programs and identify both sort of exemplary behavior on use of force and high-risk behavior and also, because we're working with so many agencies and we have a standardized data collection process, for the first time, agencies are able to make meaningful interagency comparisons with their use of force practices. And we have partnerships with several universities, uh, the main one being Seattle University and their criminal justice department. And we have a number of uh, peer-reviewed journal articles that we've published um, using the data from our database, which is which is the largest and most comprehensive use of force database in the United States. And, and we're continually expanding it. And maybe one day I'll, I'll end up working with some agencies in Canada as well. So one of the things I uh, did want to get to, and maybe we can go back a bit to what you're saying about consent decrees. And this is all over the news, American news anyways. 
what can you tell us exactly what is a consent decree? And maybe, um, are you aware of the current buyback, the gun buyback that our federal government is looking to do? Um, I, I'm aware of, of gun buyback programs. We had we had some in Seattle, so I'm aware of how they work, but I'm not familiar with the specifics of the Canadian program. Oh, okay, so basically the federal government is looking to do a buyback up here, and then they've now put it out to the provinces and then cities and further on to the smaller communities looking for assistance in doing this. Well, some of them have put up resistance and said, we will not use... Uh, police resources, provincial or municipal resources to enact your federal uh, buyback. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And maybe this is a, a what the consent decree kind of leads into where there's that separation of uh, powers and direction of resources when it comes to the federal level. And then for you, it'd be the state level, maybe even down to the municipality but is there, um, is this kind of like the state giving up power to the feds and saying like, hey, you can tell us how to police? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's what it does. And it, 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 it's not, uh, I think it in many ways is, is unlawful and unconstitutional in the United States, the way the, way the program is managed. Um, and essentially what happens is, is that the Department of Justice um, using secret criteria known only to them will pick a police department to investigate. And there are 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States uh, at the, at the state and local level. And the department of justice has over the last 25 years or so investigated about hundred, 150 of those agencies and, and entered into, you know, about 80 consent decrees. Um, no one knows how they decide um, to pick an agency to investigate, and no one knows how and how they investigate and and how they you know what criteria they use. It's all secret, really. And so what they did, what they did in Seattle, generally, I mean, there was there was a law review article uh, from the University of Illinois that was published a few years ago, and and they they interviewed some officials anonymously from the Department of Justice. And basically they said, this is, this is all political, right? I mean, it's like, it depends on, you know, which administration is in control of DOJ. It depends on, you know, the local politics. Um, but it, it, it is a political process. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is, it, it, there's nothing, it's not data driven. It's not, it's, it's, it's just pure political. And so, so in Seattle, what happened was, was that we had, um, an officer-involved shooting of uh, a Native American man, uh, and the uh, and he was killed. Uh, his name was John T. Williams, and this was, I think, back in 2010. And so the department had a firearms review board, so they immediately convened the firearms review board, and they found the shooting to be unjustified. And the officer immediately resigned. And um, then there was. Uh, we have uh, a, a, an inquest process uh, in, in King County where the prosecutor will will basically present the facts to a, a, a six-person jury and ask them a series of questions. And during that inquest process, you know, no officer has ever been charged as, as a result of the inquest process. And um, 
so similarly, they, they, they did an inquest. Um, and even though the, the police department found the shooting to be unjustified, the, the prosecutor decided not to file any charges against the officer. And so then the, the police department referred the case to the Department of Justice, and they also refused to charge the officer. So the department took immediate action to hold the officer accountable, and the officer resigned but neither the state or federal prosecutor would prosecute the officer. Mm-hmm. So what happened was this, that, that after this incident, there were some other high profile, you know, in the media, you know, cell phone camera uh, of different use of force incidents. And none of them involved any death or serious bodily injury, uh, but they all looked bad, right, on camera. And so the, what happened was, was that the, the U.S. attorney at the time, Jenny Durkin, um, she uh, announced that she was going to launch a pattern of practice investigation of the Seattle Police Department. And so um, I was in the city attorney's office at that time. And so I was essentially responsible for representing the department and representing the city in this investigation. So what DOJ does is they say, and they will come in and they will say, give us every record you have on use of force and allow us to interview anyone we want to in the police department. And, and then they do essentially a secretive investigation, right? It's all closed door. We don't, we don't get any feedback. We don't know what they're doing. So we gave them millions of documents uh, that they requested. And they had these two retired police officers who were their consultants, um, who really didn't know anything about anything, um, but they would do whatever the DOJ told them to do. So they did some kind of secret process, and they determined that uh, 20% of all the department's uses of force were unconstitutional and either excessive or unnecessary. Really? And so when we saw that, when we saw that finding uh, in their letter, in the DOJ letter, we said, that's, that's not possible. We review every single use of force incident, and if there's a problem, you know, the department will take action, um, but there's no way that 20% are unconstitutional. And we had a very low uh, lawsuit rate, right? We, we had a very low complaint rate and a very low amount number of lawsuits compared to other agencies. So there was no indication that, our, that there was a, a, whatever a pattern of practice is. But, um, so so we, we, we asked the DOJ, we said, can you show us? the cases that you found to be unconstitutional and they refused. Which is strange because you think they would want an answer then. Like they would want you to answer well, to it. it they, they, they said, we're, we're talking about, they looked at, at, at two and a half years of data. So, the, so 20% would have been 250 cases. Mm-hmm. So they, they supposedly had 250 cases that they had identified as being unconstitutional. And they wouldn't, they wouldn't tell us a single one. And in their, in their findings letter, they used some examples of cases that they found to be unconstitutional. And we, you know, based on the fact pattern, it was like six or seven cases. And so based on the fact pattern, we identified the cases we thought they were talking about. And what we found is that in the DOJ summary, in their findings letter, they had added facts or the added you know, descriptions that weren't there. They left out key facts, and and I mean they were just fabrications. 
And so we, we, we asked DOJ, so, so like, like, are these the cases you're talking about? Because the cases in your, in your report are, are, are fabricated. And they said, well, no, the cases in the report are not actual cases. They're, they're sort of like examples of many cases. Mm. Um, so, so they essentially, they fabricated their, their, their findings letter. And then they demanded that, that the department enter into a consent decree. And, uh, I mean, I could, I could go on, we could talk for hours about this, but, but basically it was, it was a, it was a total sham from the beginning and every consent decree is a sham Are they because the DOJ, sorry, I was going to say, are they mandatory? No, this is the thing is that the DOJ on its own has no authority to do anything, uh, over, over, um, uh, local law enforcement. They cannot force the, the local law enforcement to do anything. It's all, it's all voluntary. These, these agencies just turn everything over. And then when the DOJ says sign this consent decree, they just do it because everybody's afraid of the DOJ. Mm-hmm. And, and even though there's nothing they can do. And so, so there's only one agency that has ever said no to the DOJ. And that was Alamance County Sheriff's Office in North Carolina, very small sheriff's office. And because the sheriff was separately elected, um, he could make his own decision. Whereas in almost all consent decrees are municipalities mm-hmm. where the police chief is appointed by the mayor. And so it's the, it's the mayor and the city council in all these cities that make the decision, not the police department, to enter into a consent decree. But Alamance County Sheriff's Office said, so DOJ came in, they said, you have a pattern of practice of, of uh, excessive force and, and biased policing. And we demand you enter into this consent decree. And the sheriff said no. And so the, the DOJ, the only way that they could get them to enter into a consent decree was to take them to, to file a lawsuit in federal court, which is what they did. And the DOJ lost. And the DOJ, because the DOJ cannot prove a pattern of practice. Mm-hmm. They don't know how. They don't, they, don't, they, don't have, they don't have the capability of doing that. And they lost. And the, and the judge, the federal judge, wrote like a 250-page opinion basically saying how there was nothing there. Right? And, and, and so, so then the DOJ appealed. Um, but before it went up on appeal, they basically negotiated a deal with the sheriff. And they said, if you, if you promise to improve things, um, we'll drop our lawsuit. And so, of course, the sheriff said, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll promise to improve things. And, and so they dismissed the lawsuit. But that's the only case in 25 years, 25 plus years, where a local law enforcement agency has said no. And right now, the DOJ is investigating Minneapolis, Phoenix, and uh, Louisville. And they will find a pattern of practice and they will demand a consent decree. And all the, all the agency has, all the cities have to do is just say no. And then, and then DOJ has the burden of proving it in court and they won't be able to do it. So it's like dealing with a bully. You know, maybe if you just say no and actually stand up for yourself. It's a total, it's a total bully. Absolutely. I mean, and they use every, every political tool in their, in their tool belt to force cities to do this. I mean, it was a battle um, with the, with the U S attorney and DOJ in Seattle, and they were going to the press. They were, they were trying to rile up the community against the, against the police department. 
I mean, they, they used every trick in the book and, and they won. Uh, and, and it was the elected officials that were afraid, right? They were afraid for their own and, and the mayor ended up losing. And then, and then the U S attorney who started the consent decree became the mayor of Seattle. So, so it's all, poli- it's so political. <laughs> well, and you know, we have a, a, maybe a similar narrative going on here, uh, where we have a police commission that is kind of the buffer between the city council, the mayor and city council, and then the police chief. And, uh, the mayor just recently said that he doesn't think a board of volunteers, uh, should be handling such a large budget and giving direction on it. So some people see that as kind of a uh, creeping in of the, um, you know, there's no more separation between the police and city council. They're looking at kind of putting their hands on things more tightly controlled. So um, similar things happening up here. Uh, One thing I wanted to get into was talking about your current position as CEO. So you... um, Right now, you work a lot with statistics, and you guys have some different programs that work on that uh, side of things. So can you kind of explain what your company does and the science or technology that you use? And then we'll get into kind of the, um, the current narratives and, and what you've seen and some of the failures of some of the statistics that are put out there. Sure, sure. So, so every police department in the U.S., and I'm sure in Canada, is... is they're sitting on mountains of data. I mean, I mean, there is so much data in a law enforcement agency and, 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 and so little of it is ever used. And, and a lot of the data is in the police incident reports and in the officer narrative statement. I mean, everything you ever need to know about a use of force incident is in that incident report and the officer statement, because they will say, they will detail everything that happened from start to finish and, and the, 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 the challenge is how do you, how do you collect that data? How do you get that data? How do you analyze it? And what do you do with it uh, after you've analyzed it? And that's basically what we do. We, 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 we don't, um, you know, sort of, we're not like an IT company that produces, you know, records management systems or CAD systems or anything else. Basically what we do is we, we extract the data from those systems and from the police incident reports. And then we, we have uh, a methodology for, for coding and, and um, uh, extracting the data that standardizes the data collection process. And then we have different analytical tools that we use to analyze the data. A lot of them are based on the legal standards. Um, like in the United States, we have the Graham v. Connor case, which is, is the, the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court case by which you know, no use of force can go below that standard. So we have different metrics that measure the standards. We also look at proportionality of force to resistance. So we can see whether force is potentially excessive or not. And so once we've collected the data, analyzed the data, then we provide the data back to the agency in the form of interactive dashboard. So then they can query their own data. They can look at their own officers and they, and, and, and we're not, we don't, we're not like a, uh, a consultant that comes in and tells the department, here's what you should do, mm-hmm. right? Here's how you write your policies. Here's how you do your training. What we're trying to do is to give the department the tools so that they can analyze their own policies and training and they can use the dashboards to improve their own practices and identify high-risk officers themselves um, without anybody telling them that. And, and also the, in, in terms of like um, 
being able to work with the community and elected officials to to show them what what is actually happening. Not what not what the media says, not what the activists say, not not what the DOJ says, but this is this is what's actually happening in public safety and policing in our community, and we have the data to show it. And so part of what we do is we, we produce public dashboards as well that, that don't have the individual officer detail but have a lot of other information. And uh, those are extremely popular with, with the public because they can actually interact with the, with the law enforcement data themselves mm-hmm. and, and ask their own questions. And generally, when people see the, the, the data, their, their opinions will often change. And they realize that there's, there's a lot more to the story than, than is being presented. And um, the other major thing that we do in our use of force analysis system is we look at what the subject does, not just what the officer does. Because as you know, anyone in law enforcement knows that, that you're only using force because of the subject's behavior. Mm-hmm. So either they're non-compliant or they're threatening or they're assaultive or they're fleeing. Um, but you can't just use force for no reason. So in order to understand use of force, you have to understand what the subject is doing, what the subject behavior is. And, and because the officer is always going to be reactive to that behavior. So if you don't analyze, if you don't collect and analyze the data on the subject, then you're only looking at half the story and you will never understand, you know, whether that force was justified or not or excessive or not. So have you had any examples where you've produced data for uh, a city or a police service? And you don't have to name names, but have you given someone some data and then they go and spin it to some of the current narratives out there and you're like, okay, that's not, that's not what it says and that's not what we presented to you or you're, you're only given 10% of the story? Yeah, no. Well, well, one of the things that's interesting is because because um, obviously our our system is voluntary and agencies have to pay to to, to to use our services. We tend to get the most uh, progressive chiefs of police that that and sheriffs that that want this data and they want they want to to understand the data themselves and they want to present the data to the public. And, and so they tend to be the, the better agencies, right? They tend to be the agencies that don't have big problems uh, because they're not afraid of the data. They're not trying to hide anything. And so, so we've never encountered a situation where, where we think a, a department is misusing the data um, or misinterpreting the data. And, and also when you have a full comprehensive data set, it, it, it's pretty hard to do that. It's pretty hard to take you know, a, a, a data and spin it in another way when, when it's a very comprehensive um, uh, system. And so, so it, it tends to be the opposite. It tends to be um, agencies presenting the data to the public and then the public like, wow, this is, this is not what we expected to see. Mm-hmm. And, 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 Sort of, uh, uh, especially when it when it comes to uh, issues of, of racial disparities in policing, because once you once you see that, okay, why are police using force? Is it is it just because they're they're randomly targeting uh, people of color um, who are involved in minor offenses and using force against them because they're biased, or is is it because 
the the all the individuals that that have force used against them are doing something. They're fleeing. They're resisting. They're assaulting. They're threatening, and and that's why the officer uses force. And that's that's what the data shows. Because if if the, if the officer has no reason for using force, then that that force is going to be unjustified, and the officer is likely to be disciplined. So so there all there's always going to be a reason if if the force is is justified. And so and and what we found is that you know usually less than than two percent of uses of force are found by an agency to be out of policy and most of those violations are are relatively minor and so so we don't see in the data this this massive problem with police uses of force and so what happens in the media is obviously they will take a high profile incident like george floyd and they will blow that up and say this is what all officers do all over the country all the time Mm -hmm when that obviously was a bad incident and the officer was convicted of homicide, but that's extremely rare. And, and, and if you have uh, a country with, with eight or 900,000 police officers amongst 18,000 police departments, you will have bad incidents and you will have bad officers and, and, and there will be mistakes made. And the question is not, you know, is everybody perfect? The question is, well, what do agencies do when their officers screw up? And if an agency is holding their officers accountable and they're, they're uh, dismissing officers that shouldn't be police officers, then that's really the best you can hope for because you'll never get a situation where um, you'll have a department where no force is ever used Yeah, uh, because it's, it, you, you cannot be a police officer and not use force because mm-hmm. y- you have to be able to, to, to arrest people and, and, and not just let them run away or, or beat you up. Um, and so, so use of force is an essential part of policing and, and people don't, people think that, Oh, we, we, we don't need officers should never use force. And that's, that's, that's what we're getting into the debate about the officer involved shootings, officer involved shootings, and, and deaths in the United States have been pretty flat for the last, you know, 12 or so years that they've been collecting data at about, you know, between, you know, 11 and 1200 deaths a year. And regardless of how many, poli- how much training, how much de-escalation training, how many new policies, how many consent decrees, it's flat. And, and that's because it's all based on the subject behavior. And none of those policies or training or de-escalation or anything affect subject behavior. And as long as you have subjects that are, are threatening officers or others with deadly force, they will have deadly force used against them. And so, so you have to look at both sides of the equation. Yeah. And you know what I, um, and this kind of reminds me of some of the training we've done here. I know other people have done in several other services across Canada. And I imagine the U S has the same thing, but you have bias awareness training and all these different programs. Uh, I talked with somebody else on this podcast about the mental health training that they give to us. And there's no measure. So after you do the training, there's no measure of, ah, did that work? How did it work? Did it improve anything? Uh, they just kind of throw some slides at you and say, okay, we did our part. You know, We gave our officers something. Uh, well, hopefully this is better now. I just find that's kind of a throwaway and you know, they're, they're spending a lot of money on some of these programs. So is that really worth it? And are we really 
doing anybody any favors. The other thing it sometimes can do, depending on the training, is you know you keep bashing a certain narrative into people's heads. Well, now you get things like de-policing, or you get uh, police that won't go into certain communities because they're scared to interact with that group because they're scared of a complaint or a confrontation. So you're actually doing a disservice to those communities, especially the underserved communities. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and you raised several points there, and and uh, starting with the like the de-escalation training. I mean, I've been through the. We have a, a forty-hour crisis intervention training, you know, that was done in in Seattle and and Washington State. I've been through that. I've been through different other de-escalation training classes. I I think it's I think they're fantastic. I think they're fantastic. Uh, they they teach you really valuable skills. They they provide really valuable information, and and I I I think I think every officer should go through it, but it's not going to reduce uses of force Mm -hmm. and it's not going to eliminate the need to reduce force. And so what we see in the data is that even when every officer in the, in a department goes through 40 hour deescalation training, that, that does not change use of force incidents. And sometimes use of force incidents may go up uh, because again, it's all based on, I mean, if you have, an armed robbery suspect who's fleeing with a firearm, right? There's probably no amount of de-escalation. <laughs> you know, you can try that's going to get that, 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 that armed violent robber to stop and surrender. Well, according to the media, we should just give them a hug. But, uh... <laughs> yeah, well, well it, 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 it's so unrealistic. And yeah. like most, most of the harshest critics of policing do not understand anything about public safety or policing or how you know, what it's like to be a police officer or what, what, and so, so on the one hand, I think the training is great. On the other hand, it's not going to achieve the outcomes that people expect. And so, so obviously we want officers to interact with people with, with respect and professionally, but that doesn't mean that they can't, they still need to use force when, when, when necessary. And, and, and so you can't train officers not to use force if you want them to do their job. And, and the, 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 uh, the other thing is, is like the implicit bias training and that kind of thing, which is huge. And, and, and agencies are spending, you know, millions of dollars, you know, on this training. Mm-hmm. Again, I think it, I, I don't know that that training is very relevant. Like the de-escalation training is very relevant for law enforcement, the implicit bias training. There's never been any study done that shows that this has any impact at all mm-hmm. and and i i've been through again i've been through this training and various types of training when i was with uh city of seattle and i've been through some training sessions where people really resent it right but they resent sort of being uh, uh talked down to there's a lot of tension that builds mm-hmm. you know amongst the the, the 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 people in the class and and oftentimes it might have a counterpart counterproductive effect where you go in more biased than when you, or you come out more biased than when you went in just because you resent the training and what was what was being told to you and so so the, the idea that somehow uh, sitting through a class is going to make I mean if you're biased right there's no class that's going to make you unbiased or less biased and if you're if you're if you're open-minded and not not biased then you're not taking action you know, you're racially profiling and everything, then there's no class that's going to make you better at it or whatever. I mean, it's, 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 
it's, you're trying to change the hearts and minds of police officers and, and it, there's no class that's going to do that. And so I think, I think largely because, because people expect, right. People expect, Oh, if officers go through implicit bias training, then racial disparities will go down. That's not, that's not how it works. And, and, and the other thing is, is that, that you mentioned is the, the sort of, uh, de-policing disengagement. Um, that's another factor, especially with consent decrees is that, um, if, if obviously officers have to be held accountable, right? So if they screw up, right, if they do something that's out of policy or unlawful, they need to be held accountable for that. Mm-hmm. But if officers don't screw up, if officers are simply doing their job and they still get complaints and they still get their name in the press and, and they still have, you know, elected officials criticizing them for doing their job, then of course you're going to get this, this disengagement. And, and because you're not, if you don't make an arrest, you're not going to use force. And if you don't, if you don't uh, contact someone, then you're not going to get a complaint. So there's this natural, uh, you know, de-policing effect um, of because if, if, because you know, even if you do a good job, even if you do anything right, things can go wrong. Yeah. And then you could potentially even lose your job. And so, so I totally empathize with that. Um, that, uh, but, uh, but it, it, it's like, yes, when officers screw up, absolutely hold them accountable. Right. But do not, do not, do not, you know, just paint all officers as, the same officer who killed George Floyd. I mean, and that's what's happening now. That's the whole de-policing movement. It's like all officers are bad all the time. And the other piece of this, you mentioned about like um, communities of color and how, you know, ultimately when, when particularly with a consent decree or when agencies come under intense scrutiny, when there is this disengagement, then it's communities of color that suffer the most because communities of color suffer the most from crime particularly violent crime. Mm-hmm. And no one wants to look racial disparities in victimization because when you look at um, disparities in the crime data, um, uh, African-Americans uh, and indigenous people are far more likely to be the victims of violent crime than white people and Asians. Um, and so, so nobody talks about those disparities. And that has nothing to do with the police. But obviously the reason that, that the police are maybe may, may have a bigger presence in communities of color is because that, because they're being called by communities of color who are crime victims. Yes. And so they're trying to prevent and, 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 and stop crime and arrest the, the, the perpetrators, um, who themselves are predominantly people of color. And so you, you have this sort of vicious circle where you're criticized, you're being called to these areas, you're doing your job, you're making an arrest or using force or whatever you have to do. And then you're criticized for doing your job. And, and so you pull back and it's the communities of color that will suffer the most. Well, and you had a really good article. Uh, it was in the Seattle times in June. Uh, it was called invest in underserved communities before cutting police budgets. And I'll put a link to this when, uh, I upload the episode, but in here, uh, you talk about how there's all these statistics about, uh, and it's from the FBI's data, uh, just how African-Americans and uh, white people are kind of compared and contrasted here. And um, just the use of force and how many people are arrested. 
and black people are, you know, X amount of times more likely to be arrested or have force used against them, which is current narratives out there and what everybody seems to be screaming and shouting. But then you have a good part in here where it says, and I'll read it right from the, the, the text. It says, why are black residents in Washington state much more likely than white residents to report being the victim of a violent crime? And why are black residents more frequently reported as violent crime suspects? And those questions never get asked. When I read this, and you go in more into the stats on both sides of things, it's, um, and it even leads into like bail reform and parole and how people are let out simply because they're of a certain ethnic group and they don't want to have the stats in uh, our remand centers or in our jails uh, jacked up for one specific group. But you're sending these people back into their community because they're going to go home. They're going to go back to mom or whoever's going to take care of them. And generally that's back into the same community and they re-victimize people. But the other part of that is, is we keep losing sight of who the true victim of the crime was. And we're kind of in this world where the accused or the suspect is being viewed as the only victim. The person that they victimized is kind of left in the dust. And then the police are just the bad guys who keep the criminal down, I guess. Yeah, no, that, that, that's exactly right. And that, that, that's one of, one of my biggest frustrations is that everyone wants to talk about racial disparities in policing. Right, that's that's the hot topic, mm-hmm. but nobody wants to talk about racial disparities in education, racial disparities in housing, racial disparities in healthcare, racial disparities in in unemployment, in poverty. I mean, I mean, it goes on and on and on. And I, I, I in that in that op ed, I, I included a lot of statistics about racial disparities in, in in King County, Washington, in all these other areas, and and so. If you look at, at like how, because I, I'm certainly not saying that there is no racial bias and systemic discrimination in our society. I mean, absolutely there is. And it's evidence in, in all these disparities. What, what my argument is, is that the police are not the sole or even the primary cause of those racial disparities. Mm-hmm. And so if you grow up in a, in a, in a, single uh, parent household and you're poor and you're poorly educated, you have no job, you, you know, you have no access to health care. I mean, of course you're going to be more likely to engage in crime. And so, so, and of course you're more likely to come into contact with the police and be arrested and maybe have some bad interaction with the police. And so if we want to reduce racial disparities in policing, we have to reduce racial disparities in criminal behavior. Look at the root cause of the is to is to you know provide provide resources for people who are committing crimes and families that have family members that are committing crimes so that they don't commit crimes and then they, then the police will leave them alone mm-hmm. right and then and then you'll reduce those racial disparities and so if you focus on but but that is so much harder right for elected officials to deal with. Right, I'm not going to deal with poverty in my city. I'm going to blame all the problems on the police. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to care the mentally ill because that's too expensive. I'm going to blame the police for using force against mentally ill people who are on the street. And so, so the the police are really the scapegoat for systemic racism in society as a whole. 
And, and that's what I find very, very frustrating because it, 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 it and again, it doesn't mean that the police are perfect and there aren't officers that, that, that are, you know, should be, you know, disciplined or dismissed, but, but they're not, they're not the policing as a whole is not generating the racial disparities that we see in the criminal justice system. They are simply responding to the racial disparities in society. Well, and I've said this on here before that by the time the police deal with you in most instances, uh, many other, like in a, a way where they got to arrest you, there are many other systems that have failed you before you got to this point, yep. whether that's your family, yep. that's the school, that's society in general, any other place you've touched on, if it's healthcare, uh, education, whatever it may be, but many other places come across you systems, institutions, before you uh, ever really deal with the police. And yeah, I think it's, it's just, we're the easiest scapegoat because we're right at the forefront and the kind of the superficial uh, one to blame. But to actually look at a root cause of a problem and deal with it is much more time consuming, more resources, harder to do. But you got to have harder conversations with people and say, hey, you're not doing your job. Whereas the police, it's much easier to just blame them and maybe take money away from them or whatever the the idea might be for that day. Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right, and I I think that that like one of the things I I, I think about often is is the controversy around school resource officers, and and because the the obviously it's like people want just like they you know there's groups that want to defund the police, there are also groups that want to get police out of school. And obviously it would be great if we didn't need police in schools, but the police are in schools because there is violence in schools, There is crime in school. And, and so if you don't want the police to be in schools, then get rid of the crime and the violence, you know, create, create programs that, you know, will help students graduate, you know, uh, provide free lunches and meals and everything. And I mean, you, you have to create a safe environment before you can pull the police out. Just like you need to create a safe neighborhood before you can start, you know, reducing police resources. So you have to, you can't just say, well, we're going to defund the police and that will solve all the, all the racial disparity problems in society. You have to deal with those problems first. And then if we have a safer society, then we can, then we can reduce the police because they're not needed. But right now that's, that's not, <laughs> that's not the situation. Yeah. And even back to when uh, a lot of, the police services and the heads of uh, all the agencies were making apologies for systemic racism. I remember the commissioner for the RCMP went before, um, it was, might've been the House of Commons, but uh, was in front of our political leaders and said, you know, I apologize for the RCMP and we're systemically racist. And then one of the people said, can you give us an example? <laughs> and uh, the commissioner couldn't produce one example and just was kind of muttering and then deferred to somebody else sitting there. And I just thought, I, I haven't seen anybody give an example that I can think of. Um, I'd appreciate if somebody could, but you know, I, I just think of my own family and the people I grew up with and coming through. Uh, I've been through training with two different police agencies, both with the RCMP and with uh, the Edmonton Police. And I never saw a single policy 
or practice that said, hey, we only we do this to this specific group, uh, or we we target these people because they're uh, of this immutable characteristic. And I think of how many cops have biracial, multiracial families, um, how many people I see interacting on the job and getting along. And I think at the uh, end of the day, a lot of this just looks like, you know, uh, the older generation apologizing maybe for things that happened in their time, whether they were a part of it or not. Um, but maybe they're, they're kind of getting on the bandwagon and apologizing for things as a collective and they can get it off their conscience because it's easier to do that than face it alone. Uh, but it's a very strange world we're in because I just think a lot of the people now, when you get officers who are in their 20s and 30s like I am, um, we grew up in a very different world than what I feel like everybody's really apologizing for and some of these policies and procedures that I was like, yeah, that never existed. I don't know what everybody's apologizing for. Yeah, I think this is a this is one thing that really frustrates me is when, I mean, we talked earlier about the Toronto police chief apologizing to the community for the systemic racism in, the, in his police department. And that was all based on a flawed statistical study that found racial disparities in policing data with the population, which every single department in, I know that in, in the U S and in Canada and, and, and the UK and Australia, everything, every study I've ever seen shows racial disparities with minority populations. So does that mean that everyone is, is systemically racist and every agency is racist? Um, or does, is it simply a reflection of systemic racism in our society? And so it's like, I, I don't like, I certainly empathize with, 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 with communities that have been, you know, oppressed and, and underserved for, for generations. Um, and, 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 but rather than, rather than making an apology for something that you have no control over, why not say, you know, as the police chief of Toronto, I'm going to, um, you know, lobby the, the, the city council and the mayor to get more resources in these communities that are plagued by crime. We need, we need better sanitation. We need better transportation. We need better housing. We need better medical care. We, we need more jobs, right? That is going, that, 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 that is, has so much more impact than an apology about your own department, you know, uh, flaws that may or may not even exist. Um, and, and, but I think just as you said, I think that it's, it's, it's basically expected, right? Right. You, if you just acknowledge that there's a problem, then somehow you've sort of inoculated yourself from criticism. Well, I've, I've said we're bad. So, so you can't, you know, criticize me because I've, I've already admitted it. Mm -hmm. Um, instead of actually doing something about it, right? I mean, racial disparities exist. Yes. What are the reasons? Here are all the reasons. What are we going to do about it? You know, and, and, and everybody again, just sort of, Oh, it's just the police. Police are the problem. If we didn't have police, we wouldn't have racial disparities. Well, that's, that's not how it works. Yeah, and it, well, you'd have a lot less safety and then you'd see some real disparities more than just based on race. It'd be based on gender. It'd be based on a whole lot of other things. So um, people don't realize just well, how dangerous of a world it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what it's like in Canada, the, the data, but in the U.S., you know, uh, if, if you're a young black male, 
you're about 20 times more likely to be killed than, than a young white male. Um, and so, so not by the police, just, just, just killed in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so yes, if you, if you took away law enforcement, those racial disparities and victimization are just going to get more extreme. There's no way that it's, that's going to somehow vanish without the police. So, um, kind of in totality, what, what do you think is the main reason why people aren't asking those more in-depth questions and aren't asking the why? So when they get the initial, hey, there's these disparities, uh, this group is dealt with more than this group, this one has more use of force used against them, why are they just leaving it at that? Why are they not going further and saying, well, who calls us more? Who's the victim more? Uh, you know, what communities are having the most trouble? Well, one of the things that I get frustrated with with activists and critics of the police is that they don't want data they don't want any information that will upset their narrative of the police and and that 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 really turns me off <laughs> when when somebody's just like no the police are bad well well look the data the data doesn't support what you're saying well i i don't the data is meaningless. Well, and they're only looking at their cherry picking information. That's why, you know, all the activist groups and uh, they use population as a benchmark for measuring racial disparities, because that always produces the results that they want to see. Mm-hmm. And they don't want any conflict information with that. And so, so there's this, there's this rejection of fact. And, and I think that, that, it's not just in policing, right? We see this politically as well. We see this in, in, in social media. I mean, people are just entrenched in their point of view and, and there's, there's good guys and they're bad guys. And if you agree with me, you're a good guy. If you disagree with me, you're a bad guy. And so I think that we're just getting more and more polarized and the police are a perfect, you know, sort of foil to, to, to argue about. And, 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 um, but, you know, the, 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 uh, the, the, the problems that, that, that African-Americans have in the United States in the, in their lives. I mean, the, the police are, you know, to the extent that they are a problem are such a small part of the problem compared to, you know, economics and education and housing and all the other things that, that, that disadvantaged communities face and and the police are just there trying to trying to do their job and trying to help keep people safe and and uh, but i i can totally understand you know if you're you know in 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 one of these communities with high crime rates chances are you have friends and family that commit crime and and if the police shoot or kill a friend or family member you're going to feel regardless of what what that person may have been doing, you know, in criminal behavior, you're going to feel pretty negatively towards the police. So, so I understand why people feel the way they feel, but what, what my, my sort of goal is, is that let's, let's try to use data and facts to address the real problem, to address the problem that you all say you're concerned about, which are racial disparities in the criminal justice system. How do we how do we reduce those? I agree they should be reduced. There's no question they should be reduced. How do we do that? 
And, and because what we're doing with the police is not changing anything. Mm-hmm. So, so we, every agency could be under a consent decree. <laughs> you could have, uh, you know, uh, racial profiling policies, training, implicit bias training, de-escalation. You can do everything and it won't move the numbers at all. Well, it makes you wonder uh, why we listen to people that are completely unreasonable or not willing to listen to data or anything. They just want to scream and shout. And if you don't give them what they want, uh, you know, it's either they're acting like a two-year-old and you, you know, as a parent, you're not giving into your two-year-old. You're not helping them become a better person by just handing them anything or they're acting like a bully. And if you think giving into a bully today and they're going to leave you alone tomorrow is a good idea, that's not going to happen. They just keep coming back for more. And with a lot of these groups, they never really give an end goal. They don't say, okay, we want to see, you know, these three things happen. And if that happens, then let's see what, you know, where it goes from there. And that's what we're working toward. They basically just scream and shout. Uh, A lot of it's out of emotion. We're not dealing with data or facts, Uh, but they do it out of emotion. And once you kind of give in a bit, then they just start screaming about the next thing down the road. And it's like, well, where's the end goal? We can't just be in this uh, never-ending vortex of, you know, working with people who don't want to work with us. Yeah, I mean, I I think there's there's so much, um, I think, sort of pent-up frustration in general in, in, in society about so many different things, and especially politically. And, and the police are really, you know, an easy target and, and a quick fix, right? Let's, if we could just fix the police department, that would solve most or all of our problems. And, and that, that seems to sort of what happened about like the George Floyd protest is, yes, you had a very bad incident. You had, you had an officer who committed a crime and someone died. Absolutely. Hold them accountable. Uh, put him on trial. He's convicted, put him in jail. Absolutely. But that again is not indicative. I mean, even law enforcement agencies came out very quickly to condemn what, what officer Chauvin did, mm-hmm. right? Because that was not an, that was not a neck restraint, right? That was an illegal, even, even, even the Minneapolis police department's own policies prohibited what Derek Chauvin did. So, almost uniform condemnation of his actions. And yet the, we had protests for months all across the country because people assume that this is what police officers do all the time and, and that it's, it's condoned behavior and, and, and it has to stop because there's, if it was just that one single incident, um, and people saw this as an aberration, then then we wouldn't have had all these protests. Maybe you would have protests in Minneapolis, but people think that this happens all the time, and and only 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 to to you know uh, African Americans or 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 uh, you know disadvantaged people, and and when in fact you know many more white people are killed every year in the United States by police than black people, mm-hmm. but as you can manipulate the data to, to make it seem much worse. I mean, and, and, and like when you look at these um, websites that have collected data on police shooting, the greatest disparity um, with the population of any 
demographic group are Pacific Islanders. Because Pacific Islanders make up such a small percentage of the population. And even though they're also a small percentage of officer-involved shooting deaths, the the ratio, mm-hmm. um, you know, is, is, you know, so let's say that they were, I'm just making these numbers up, but let's say that they were 1% of the population and 6% of officer-involved shootings. That's a six-to-one disparity. Um, and, and, and so, so it's that disparity that people look at. They don't look at that, that, oh, well, we're talking about, you know, um, uh, uh, six people that were killed every year, or, uh, you know, or whatever, you know, it's a very small number. Mm-hmm. And, and we're not looking at why were they killed? What activity were they involved in? Were they just, you know, lined up and executed or were they involved in some kind of dangerous criminal behavior? And, and, and so you have to look at, why these numbers are the way they are, you can't just accept it and say, oh, six to one, that means that the police are racist. But that's what people do. Yeah, well, I think it'd be nice if people didn't just react, um, but that's kind of the way people have been geared nowadays. And unfortunately, uh, even in death, a lot of people's uh, deaths have been, uh, I'll say, politicized. And that's a very unfortunate world we live in when you know, somebody gets killed and it, it's used for political gain, I'll say. Um, so from here, what do you see as some of the solutions? What's working well out there and uh, where can we kind of go from here? Well, one, one, I mean, there are many problems, but one of the big problems we have in the United States is, is again, there's no data, right? There's no data on police use of force. And, and the FBI to create this use of force data collection, but it's only on deadly force um, and serious bodily injury. So it's a small, small fraction of all the use of force, and most agencies don't participate. So, and they won't release any of the data that they have collected. So it's, it's, a, it's a complete useless program. And there are a few states that have created use of force data collection programs, so Connecticut and New Jersey and New York, Ohio, California, but all these programs have significant limitations. Um, and the biggest one being that they only collect data on officer behavior, not subject behavior. Mm. So again, you can't judge the officer's behavior without <laughs> judging the subject's behavior. Um, but one thing that I'm, I'm hopeful for is that, um, and we were actually involved in the in the legislative process in Washington State. So, so last year, um, the legislature in Washington passed uh, Senate Bill fifty two fifty nine, which creates or uh, will create uh, a statewide use of force data collection program. And it it covers all uses of force, and and it will be housed. The program will be housed at a university in Washington State. So it won't be in the attorney general's office. It won't be politicized in any way shape or form and um and it a lot of the components are are uh you know because we were involved in the legislative process we were we were suggesting you know and and also several universities were involved as well so it's actually the first sort of academic based um use of course data collection program and if that program uh is it's, it's scheduled to begin sometime next year. They haven't selected the university yet to do it, but if it's done well, um, 
it could it could be the model not only for the U.S. but for Canada as well. I think in terms of how to collect and analyze data, and it, and it could it can completely change the narrative around police use of force um, based on facts and evidence, and and it could help law enforcement agencies identify where they're deficient, where they're doing really well. It could evaluate things like you know, de-escalation training, implicit bias training, what works, what doesn't work. Um, but until we have that, that very robust data collection program that is implemented at least at a statewide level, we're, 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 just, we're, just op- we're basically operating in the dark. So anybody can say anything they want about policing and, you know, and, and, and just accept it as fact when it may or may not be true at all. And do you see, uh, I, I know there's a whole bunch of talk around uh, trying to incentivize recruitment for officers and some services are paying out some big amounts, like tens of thousands of dollars for uh, experienced officers to lateral over. Are you seeing that at all? Or is that kind of working as a success down there? Uh, I don't think it's successful. I know it happens a lot. Like Seattle, Seattle just approved a big sort of, hiring package with bonuses and benefits and everything for new officers. But, you know, Seattle's under a consent decree. Mm -hmm. So they're like many of their experienced officers are either retiring early or they're, or they're going to smaller nearby agencies where they may even take a cut in pay and they may have less promotional, you know, advancement opportunities because of smaller agency, just because of of quality of life and working conditions. Mm -hmm. And, if you're if you're in a uh, uh, an agency, particularly under a consent decree, and this is happening in New Orleans, New Orleans is desperately trying to get out of their consent decree because they're hemorrhaging officers. I mean, they're down hundreds of officers from their from their uh, uh, budgeted levels, and uh, as a result, obviously they can't they they can't respond. And it's the same thing in Seattle. I think response times have gone from you know we've always tried to stay under seven minutes. Um, and, and, uh, uh, it's, it's double or triple that now. And sometimes officers never respond to, you know, a non-priority call, Mm -hmm. uh, just because they don't have staffing. And so the problem is, is that, you know, so many agencies are offering bonuses and incentives that they're, they're cannibalizing other, other departments. And so, so you, 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 I don't, I don't know that the, the reason that, that for example, that officers are leaving Seattle PD or retiring earlier is not because of the money. They're making good money mm-hmm. and they have great benefits. That's not so, so offering more money and more benefits isn't going to stop officers from leaving and it's not going to bring new officers in. It's like everybody knows that if you work for Seattle PD, you're going to be under a microscope and your career could be over in an instant. If you make, if you, if you stop the wrong person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I, I, I think that the, what, what agencies and cities and should be focusing on is, is the, the working conditions for officers and, and, you know, how do we, how do we provide support for our officers so that if they, so that they get the training they need and they know that if, if they, if they do everything right, that, that both the elected officials and, and, and management will support them. And they don't have to worry about being unfairly accused or targeted or, um, but that's not, I don't think officers, clearly they don't feel that they're supported. So they're leaving. 
Yeah. Yeah, well, definitely. It's not always about money. And sometimes, uh, for whatever reason, the upper echelons don't get that. But um, yeah, I wanted to make sure we gave you a chance here to kind of plug whatever uh, way people can follow you uh, or uh, read your work. Because I know you do some articles, but you post a lot on social media. So where should people follow you or uh, see what you're writing about? Sure. So I, I, I actually don't do a lot on social media. I'm pretty much LinkedIn. That's the only thing I'm on. So so uh, if you just search for um, Bob Scales on, on LinkedIn, you're, you're, you'll likely find me. Um, and then our website is um, policestrategies.com. Uh, and so on, on our website, we have links to a lot of news articles as well as uh, uh, peer-reviewed uh, academic articles that we have published, um, as well as some of the public dashboards that agencies are using. So you can find out more at policestrategies.com. Awesome. Well, um, I say keep you around an hour, so we're a little bit over. So I think it was good. Um, and very interesting topics. There's a lot more uh, I'd like to get into, but we'll look to have you back on. And um, if you just hang on the line, I'll say bye off offline. But um, yeah, thank you for coming on. Yeah, well, well, thank you so much. And I, I, you know, I think this is the first the first podcast I've done in Canada, and I hope to do many more. Yeah, great. We'll 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 definitely look to have you back on uh, sooner than later. So uh, just hang on the line.